Slime Podcast. Hi, I'm Hazel. I set myself a challenge to record 100 conversations about climate change. I wanted to listen to what other people are doing and thinking and feeling about it. I honestly had no idea about the impact that would have on my own life. I thought we'd be chatting about cool eco-lifestyle changes, little things that add up like refilling your shampoo bottle, mending clothes and eating more plant-based meals, and there is plenty of chat like that. And yet, maybe some bigger stuff like travel, flying and using cars. There's plenty of that too. What I didn't expect is that we'd also get into talking about awakening, grief, connectivity, activism, resilience, parenting, nature, basically the human experience of being alive on this planet today. What I've ended up doing is creating a space for people to talk about their role in a revolution. And I've realised how important it is that we make spaces for conversations like these to happen. And I'll tell you a secret. It's a bit scary, but it's not all going to be so bad. Over the past six months, I recorded conversations with my friends, my friends of friends, my friends' sisters, their aunties. I've roped in my family, people who I went to uni with or worked with years ago. That guy I bumped into once, and then a few folk heard about the project online and they got in touch with me. This podcast is my way of sharing some parts of those conversations with you. It will mostly be the voices of my climates. These are brilliant people who volunteered to have conversations with me. Some people I spoke with once and a few people I spoke with regularly. I'm incredibly grateful to each one of them for taking part and to each one of you for listening. There might be the occasional unbeat swear word. I hope you don't mind. Here we go. The time is now. There's something in the air. This is what my climates are saying about it. Climate change and sort of global warming and just like the environment as a topic has always felt like kind of too big to look at and also kind of quite easy to not look at because it's so like present that it's like it covers everything it covers your whole face so you can choose not to look at it I don't know if you heard like Scotland has declared a climate crisis no I didn't hear that yeah I know and isn't that mad that you haven't heard that but yeah, it is. Scotland and Wales and some other countries have declared it we're in a climate crisis. That was like last week. So I'd already started the project before then, but it was quite okay. interesting. I, mean, I guess maybe, maybe for certain folks, it's going to be a bit extreme, too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, though, uh, it seems like we're at a point now with the amount of time that the scientists are predicting on a global level in terms of uh, irreversible impacts that unless people put their foot down on a, on, a, on a government level, on a government scale, then, then the effects might be, be too small for, for some positive, potential reversible change. Yeah. Uh, doesn't, that seem, doesn't that seem valid? It's happening. Um, and it's almost like people are denying it. And that's, um, that's quite irritating. I find it really irritating. I, I sit in the environmental camp of it's more, um, it has to be innovation driven, so cheaper green technology and um, economic reform as opposed to sort of like this revolutionary mindset that maybe a lot of people have, you know, drastic sweeping change, which is, is an important starting point to make people think about it more, um, but I think 
in sort of practical terms and in sort of uh, real terms, like sort of technology innovation and economic reform are probably going to be the ways that um, large numbers of people, i.e. like the British population, will move into a mindset of you know doing more things that are in, uh, environmentally sustainable and actually have a real impact. I think those images, some of those, um, that amazing photography, be- almost like beautiful photography of um, plastic in oceans, I think that ha- that people, that stirred people and it bothered people. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it's almost like they went, people gr- were grieving over it. Like, I think it had a really powerful, it's almost like you can't, I can't believe I haven't seen this before. How did this not... You know, that's that. I think things like that are really, really powerful. So, though the pictures of of the the floating, you know, sort of like sea of plastic, and the um, the mammals and the sea wildlife, that horrifies me. That really horrifies me. That that it's not just change. Then mm-hmm. it's almost like torture. We we are doing something that is cruel and unforgivable. When you see animals, you know, like the birds with their beaks wrapped shut by plastic, or the there was an awful photograph of a whale that had been cut open and its stomach was full of plastic. That bothers me. Seeing those images of poachers dying, uh, seeing videos of environmental destruction happening very far away, it's really sad. And then I was sadder still when I started to realise that there's actually a huge human cost to climate change. People are dying right now around the world as a result of man-made climate change. Before April, I used to get, like, I had, I was getting really angry about things and I'd turn on the radio in the morning and I'd just be angry that it wasn't, like the headline all day every day that the climate emergency wasn't every headline on every news outlet but actually like and this was then and now the government's declared a climate emergency people didn't even know what that term was before like the april rebellion um and i would say every nearly every day there is a story about you know what's going on and what's happening and which i think is remarkable and in a short space of time. I mean, it's not, you know, we need to keep, <laughs> I'm not saying anything's solved, but I think there is genuine, genuine progress. Back in the 90s, it still felt like quite, you were out on a limb, you were odd, you were a bit negative, you were a doomsayer, you know, all these things. Um, and so it was very easy to feel despairing about it all, and that we weren't going to change quickly enough to do what we needed to do. And the reality is that we haven't changed quickly enough. And I got I got to a point a few years ago and I was really feeling quite despairing about the state that we're getting ourselves into. And then suddenly this year, 19, 2019, everything has changed with Extinction Rebellion and... Greta Thunberg and you know suddenly it, it and it came from that IPCC report saying that we've only got 12 years to sort things suddenly everything changed and 
A bit of me now feels more hopeful than I have for a long, long time. There is more and more stuff coming out. As you know, there's been reports this week again about the dangers that the Earth is facing. Uh, there was something yesterday about Greenland melting and the, uh, the problems that it's causing people in Greenland, which I, I have some sense of because we visited Greenland a few years ago. And, um, it, you know, we went there expecting to be walking around in really, really solid pieces of, of, uh, of equipment or clothing. And it was so hot, we ended up walking around in T-shirts. And, and this was supposed to be one of the, the coldest places around. So um, I've seen it at first hand. But there are, there's clearly more and more material coming out. And I think it's a matter of and then thinking, well, OK, what do we do to act on it? And that's what really I want to explore with people over the next few months. How do you approach that conversation? in a way that doesn't feel like an attack. <laughs> but that's one of the things I'm just trying to do with this, is, like, get people chatting about it. Because uh, it's also really interesting. What Because it's changed, people changing their lives because of, you know, their connection to the world around them. That's interesting, uh, right? I'm interested in people doing that. Mm-hmm. It's good chat. Yeah. Um, knowing that something that you're doing is helping the bigger picture. It's almost nice to know. A bit like the feeling of altruism. You know, when you help somebody out or you help something out, you feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside with, without having to sort of radically change the way you live your life. Obviously, nobody radically changes the way they live their life unless they're forced to by sort of drastic circumstance or they do it over a long period of time. It's like reprogramming yourself, isn't it? It's like just like reprogramming the way you think about stuff again. Yeah. Because you get into habits and routines. Um, yeah, and routines something that's quite difficult to break as well. It's something that you've always you've always done, you know. There's more and more people are talking about it, and um, uh, it just getting much much deeper into the roots of of how complex human humans are, you know. I don't know. I don't know if it's all happened in the last few weeks or if it's become visible in the last few weeks. That actually. There is a huge amount of concern and people do, do some people do really understand what's happening, but they don't know what to do. And I think the last few weeks has been an expression of that, that people have felt like they are seeing their concerns reflected, whether it's the David Attenborough documentary about climate change or the Greta Thunberg stuff or the Extinction Rebellion stuff. It's like suddenly there's a an expression of their concerns in the mainstream media and that frees people up to talk about it a bit more in their ordinary everyday lives and it feels quite exciting I mean I think a lot of a lot of the people that I talk to about these kind of things are saying you know it's all very well all this and that and that but there needs to be concrete political action which is true and I think the measure of success of something like the rebellion will be what does the government actually do in response to this but for me, there's something quite exciting about just the opening up of that space that people can talk about it. It's kind of people have been given permission to start acknowledging that actually it's a bit scary and a bit of a problem. And I think that's a really crucial first step in changing. 
it feels to me like uh, the temperature's being turned up on the conversation. I mean, the six hottest years on record have basically all been in the last six years. It's just, like, ridiculous. I mean, the hottest year on record was 2018. That was last year. That last voice was Gregor. I'm going to let you hear a bit more of his story. When I got laid off from my job, I had the time to sort of, like, think about what I was going to do next. And one of the things that sort of, like, just popped up was... Um, Climate Reality Project, which is Al Gore's charity that he runs since he you know, is no longer in government, um, and, and, and comes out of the work that he was doing himself and the presentation that he gave as a TED talk, <clears throat> that then became um, An Inconvenient Truth, the film. So he, he has this, this Climate Reality Project, which is really about from his point of view, I believe, <clears throat> making sure that people at least are facing reality. Whether they do anything about that, um, or what they do about that, is kind of uh, not his agenda. His agenda is just making sure that the discussion is taking place from a position of reality, that, that you're looking at what the facts actually say, and then, once you're faced with the facts, the decision is then up to you about whether what you do and how you do something. There I was with sort of like 1,500 other people and I kind of thought if he's doing one of these every three or four months then there's lots of people out there who now know and there's lots of people out there fighting the battle and at the time in the States it was just after Trump had made his announcement of pulling the US out of the Paris Accord um, and so there was a really strong feeling that there needed to be a reaction to that um, in the US. I mean the three questions that are the heart of the presentation are must we change, you know, can we change, will we change. All I can do is present the facts um, as given to me by the Climate Reality Project so obviously I have trust in, in the fact that they're doing that for um, apolitical reasons if you like and then you let people decide. I mean, the thing that's important to me about any of those kind of presentations is, is not the, the presentation per se, but the conversations that take place afterwards. So it's like, yes, you present the scary facts, you present some of the things that are being done that are hopeful, that actually show that we can change. Yes, you know, we, can, we could be like Costa Rica and, and basically massively increase our, our um, solar panel uh, capacity. We, there are all these things we can do. The question is, will we do it? Mm -hmm. that's, so that's where we are now. It's not, do we have to? Can we? It's will we? And it's the will we bit that we kind of like are getting stuck on at the moment. I mean, when I was trained, um, there was this nice, there was this horrible slide that basically shows, you know, carbon dioxide parts per million basically shooting up but then looking like they started to tail off or plateau uh, because of Paris and because of people suddenly becoming aware and here we are three years three years after and the decks that I have to deliver now don't show a plateau anymore they show a little bump and then it's starting to rise again because it's hard to keep people on message how do we 
how do we keep people engaged and concerned and without it becoming a war? I mean, because that's the only way you do it, right? I mean, the only way, and I'm sure there were people during World War II who basically sort of said, God, I wish it was all over. I can't be bothered with this anymore. I'm bored with the war. But it was a war. I mean, you can't really stop. It's not like you could go back to normal life. But I mean, that's in a way we do. We kind of need the climate emergency to be like that. It just needs to be all out. No, this is it for the next five, ten years. We are going to be dealing with this and it and it will feel like a war. And I suppose that's the bit I'm interested in. I trust that people have done their own research and have the most up-to-date facts. That's a different podcast. I'm listening to the conversation that happens after or around getting to grips with those facts. When I was listening back to all the conversations, I started to find threads and connections. In this podcast, I want to bring all of those together. So, for example, there's going to be chat about food in one episode and chat about travel in another I thought a good place to start might be to bring together some people telling me stories about what initially triggered their interest in all this. I actually think it was possibly um, when I was younger and living in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we used to, my friends and I used to go off on our bikes for the day in the summer holidays and things. And there was um, a little river that had a lovely bit that you could sit and have a picnic and then you could go and paddle in the river. And I think I must have been about primary six or primary seven. And we went down there and someone had dumped like an old three-piece suite and obviously it sat out in the rain and everything. It was just horrible. And I, I was really angry about it. And I remember going home and, and stomping to my dad and saying, blah, 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 blah. And he had said, right, we'll get the council to clear it up. And I kept saying to him, well, why do people do that? And, you know, he was saying, well, sometimes people are lazy or they can't afford to take it to the tip or, you know, all these things. And it... That actually probably started it. Um, and uh, I remember when I was in primary school, I, I like joined the, the primary school green team, um, where I'd volunteer like one lunch break a one lunch break a week to stand by the compost bin and collect all the apples and stuff and free fruits that you got in primary school. Um, and then, so it was always like kind of at the back of my mind and something I was aware of. And I grew up in Singapore, and so I grew up in a regime in Singapore where you were constantly aware of the fact that the island didn't have enough water um, to sustain itself unless there were water restrictions. So you grew up knowing that you needed to turn off the tap when you were cleaning your teeth and that you shouldn't waste water. And that. So, so I'd grown up being very aware of natural resources. My first environmental awareness was when I was 13 and somebody came to our school to talk about somebody from WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature Conservation, came to talk about whales really and conservation issues generally and that was the first time I ever had any awareness that there was an issue and it was that talk that encouraged me to study geography and biology at A-level and go to university to do environmental science. So, um, To fill you a bit in with what I do is I, I work with ROVs, which are remotely operated vehicles, and they're basically robotic divers. So, I, I mean, I've been doing that basically for 30-odd years now. And 
working in that environment, you, you, you're not really open to much environmentalism or that line of thought. But I was, I was a moment when I was working away. Basically, what it is is that a robotic diver, we have cameras and arms that manipulate valves and stuff down on the seabed. And I suddenly noticed about maybe 15 years having worked in that job that when I first started it in the North Sea, we used to see, we used to stop the job all the time because of fish. Um, the lights on the ROV attracted the fish and inevitably the, the fish got in the way of the cameras and we couldn't see what we could do, what, what we were trying to do. And then I, I, I suddenly had a sort of moment of realisation that I hadn't logged it for a good long while that we had to stop for fish activity. And suddenly it dawned on me that, wait a minute, the fish have disappeared. You know, that was that was a moment of sort of, you know, personally going, whoa, what, is, what are we doing here? You know? Well, my earliest memory is of the ozone layer. Um, you know, there, when there, there was, I can't remember how old I was, but I think that's probably where I be, the first time I became fearful about, you know, the damage that, about how, human impact on the environment. I, my, one of my friends showed me a news article about the IPCC report about the effects of 1.5 degrees of warming. And it seemed so crazy that this internationally recognised panel of scientists just released this report and no one had done nothing. It came out, it was on the news, and then the next day everyone carried on. And nobody was doing anything, but we didn't know what we could do. So when it came to seeing Greta on the news, it was kind of like this glimpse of hope that she showed us what we could do and that we could make ourselves heard. And that was really powerful and inspiring for a lot of people. I think my trigger, the thing that really helped capture my complete focus on this, has been the school strikes and the Swedish teenage activist Greta Thunberg. Thousands of young people making their voices heard, asking for something to be done. It struck an emotional chord in me. I needed to respond to that. And this podcast is what I've come up with so far. But I'm not the only one who's been talking about the amazing school strikers. Provocative and scary. Like, actually, if if everyone, if all the kids just went on strike, like, it would destroy everything. Like, it would be so amazing, the power that they hold. But it's just, like, it's also not fair to put that responsibility on children. <laughs> but, but then, I, yeah, like, I totally, like, just wept yesterday when I watched what, Greta Thorn Thornburg, like, talking at the EU. And I was just, like, sh she's, like, so passionate and, like, informed and dedicated and and upset and like people are just like I don't know yeah it's kind of amazing but also it's not it shouldn't be her responsibility 
should be everyone's. She shouldn't have to be standing there saying all of that because we all know that all the information that she's re relaying is available to us all. Yeah. Um, so I like Greta because she speaks really honestly, but I think that what she she does is she approaches talking about climate change as like a non-fiction story and just lays it out like these are the characters we are the we are the protagonists we're the children um and this is what's happening and this is what's going to happen if you don't if you don't do anything beautifully timed sirens in the background <laughs> <laughs> That's great. it's That's an emergency <laughs> It's, it is another part of her story is the individual um, who would be seemingly powerless being able to make a massive impact. Absolutely. And all these pictures of her on her own outside the parliament and then all of a sudden you've got 20,000 people or, you know, 100,000 people in London, wasn't it? Or something like that. Something like night. that. Yeah. I feel really inspired by it. It's the, one of the reasons I want to do this podcast. I felt I went along to the protest and I felt really emotional. Yeah. And you know, watching stuff and I'm just like, oh my god, I'm so sorry. And it was people your age, but it was also like the little kids. Yeah, no, it's that was for me when I went to that protest. Yeah. Two year olds. Yeah, and, and I'm like, just oh like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, and it's me. I've I've been a party to it by not doing anything, you know. Well, I think the fact that you're doing something now, like, because 20 years ago, no one was doing anything because no one understood it was a problem. Like, it's only now that people realise that it's a problem. And some people still aren't doing anything now, but you are. And that's you helping by showing that you are, like, not even that, like, you're sorry for what you've done, but, like, just that, like, you understand that the way that people have been running the world for, I don't know how many years now, that it's wrong and that you're up for changing it and that is I mean that's pretty much as much as anyone could ask at this point honestly because 20 years ago no one knew anything was wrong people well, thought smoking was good for you that's tr kind of true but also yeah. kind of not true you know like mm. I knew about this stuff when I was a kid yeah but I don't think nobody understood how serious it was it felt abstract yeah because yeah, no the effects of it weren't actually as serious as they're becoming now like nobody actually understood oh wait the world heating up that's actually not good or oh us doing this and doing this that's not good because the effects hadn't because so many of the effects are long term and it hadn't been an issue long enough for it to the effects to actually set in so nobody knew like people knew it was happening but no one could actually I don't know, it's not kind of thing you can blame yourself for because nobody told you how serious it was, you know? It's like, that's very generous, but people just didn't have the skills to get their head around it. Mm -hmm. And you guys, your generation, do. Um, but at the same time, we're advantaged in such a huge way because when you were married, you couldn't just message someone who was 3,000 miles away and go, yo, this is so messed up. You couldn't start, like, a worldwide movement as easily as, like, we can. Like, all the protests were based off of social media, like, that day. And there was, like, 300 protests in the UK alone. And they all came from social media. Like, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because that just wasn't a thing that happened. Like, that wasn't 
people didn't go, people didn't have that opportunity. Like, you had to write letters to people or phone calls them that cost £30 a minute or whatever. You know, like, we are really lucky in the sense that we are a divided generation. Like, we're not young people in the UK, young people in Asia, young people in America. We are just young people, no matter where you live. People think, oh, they, they only go to um, get away from school. But actually, there's a lot of people have put a lot of time and effort preparing for it. That's quite surprising. So it, it, it's hard to tell if they're if everyone's angry or if they're happy. It's strange, really. I've never that that's that was a new experience for me. So um, yeah. How do you feel about it? Or do you feel angry or happy or scared? Well, when I'm when I'm in big, um, that big group felt. I did feel a bit scared, to be honest, because of, you know, the sheer amount of people and all the noise and all that, but um, I feel really happy, in a way, because I know that people, you know, people do care, and it is possible that change could happen, you know? Um, I think the fact that I'm young, people were like, oh, she's just a bratty teenager who's, like, rebelling for the sake of rebelling. Like, it's not actually a problem, but if you think about it, I don't think this many young people would be rebelling just for the sake of rebelling, and if they were, it wouldn't be through something like this. So I think people just not understanding that it is actually an issue, and we aren't just saying it's an issue to have an issue to talk about. It is real, and we're not making it up so that we can have something to fight about. Like, it's real. That's why we're fighting about it not because we want to fight but because we need to fight about it because <laughs> no one else is so yeah no like, i feel listened to by people like in my own life that i know and like people who i like i talk about it like with young edinburgh action we met with like a bunch of people and i ended up speaking at some like climate change conference thingy in front of like 300 people and i felt listened to then that's how I was standing on a podium in front of them all and they kind of had no other place but to listen to me. But, I do, yeah, it's not really by, like, the people that are in power. Just I feel listened to by the people who know me and understand that it isn't me fighting for the sake of fighting. Not only from, like, it shows me that I can do it. It shows everyone else that I can do it. And then it also helps me show other people that, not just me, but everyone else my age who feels the same way that I do about it. Like, it's not... It's not right, it's like it's... Like, we're willing to talk about it in a democratic way. Like, we're not just going to throw stink bombs at the parliament and, like, not that that's happened, but, like, you know, we're not going to be really immature about it. We're willing to talk about it in the way that they would if they'll talk to us about it. So... Um... Someone was saying, you know, well, kids don't really have power. And I find that quite strange because it is well known that kids have a lot of power in the household because there's this whole thing around pester power. Um, And that's why advertisers want to advertise their sweets, their um, drinks, their food, whatever, during the commercial breaks of kids' programmes. Yeah. I think there's more than that as well. I think there's something really emotive for politicians, for anybody to see a child holding a banner going, 
this is my world and my future that you're messing up right now. And I yeah. see you. <laughs> like, you can't get away with that, right? I sort of brought it up a few weeks ago in work because I was supposed to be working in a school. Yes, tell and, me about that. What happened? Well, and so I, I sort of brought it up in a meeting, sort of saying, hey, we're going to be working in a school and there's a school strike. What does everyone think about that? And they sort of like, oh, well, we'll speak to the school and we'll see what what it's been like before. And there was then this kind of like, oh, well, it's, the school said it's not been an issue. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what does it mean that it's not been an issue? Like, it is an issue. What does it mean that it's not been an issue? Is that because the young people aren't involved? Is it because they're in support of people striking? Is it like... And so it, it sort of turned out that they just they hadn't... It's not really on the radar of those pupils. Um, and then the sort of conversation carried on and I was like, mm, but I don't, I don't really want to work in a school on a day where young people from other schools are striking for this cause. But then I just sort of said, actually, I don't feel comfortable working that day. I, I'm, I'm happy to put in the effort to, to make sure that that's not too disruptive, but also it's okay if it's a little bit disruptive because that's the point of a strike. And they were actually, they were really great. They were really supportive. The company were like, I was kind of surprised that nobody else came, but also it was like show day for the project. So like we're working on this thing where we go into the school and we make a show in a week. So on the Friday is when the performances are. Felt really bad about letting those young people down and not being there and not seeing the show that they'd made. But I felt like I'm glad I, I'm glad I just chose to strike. It was amazing walking like sort of shoulder to shoulder with lots of young people. I thought there's part of me that's just like there just isn't anything bigger at the moment. Like we sort of just need to radically care more. <laughs> we do. Do you want to see my banner? Oh, here we go. I'm here for all the adults that don't want to let young people down. Yay. With wow. the, the emphasis you're... on adults don't let young people down. Adults don't let... Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. So um, the young people in Edinburgh this week, I don't know, there's like a week of events that they're doing, so it's not, it wasn't just Friday. Um, and yeah. one of the things that they've come up with is that they're going to press the pedestrian crossings. So it's when it's the green man, they're going to go into the middle of the road and hold up their placards for just slightly longer than the green man is green. And then they're going to get off the road and they're going to press the button again and they're just going to keep doing that. So it's like not a roadblock, which is arrestable, but it's just slightly disruptive. And I quite like... That's what it sounds like you were taking the, the same line at work where you're like, I am going to disrupt slightly, but I'm not, I don't want to, you know, properly break down the system because I don't think that helps. I want to look after everybody. And Yeah, I did. I think it was also, there was definitely a line of like, if I push too hard, I run the risk of making everyone I work with feel really bad. And then they just become annoyed at me yeah. rather than thinking about what's happening. It's just part of my thinking is constant, like, in, in quite, I guess, a, 
um, maybe slightly apocalyptic sort of way, but like it's just really present always. Like maybe, maybe we're dying, mm. <laughs> and that that makes me feel like quite able to take action. But if I was at a point where I was finding it really difficult to look directly at, and someone was really aggressively confronting me with it, I think that would make it even harder. So I didn't want to push it, especially for the like more for the people I was working with who are who I know are starting to try and think about it or have been thinking about it but had like just had a different level had different priorities for me for different for whatever reason yeah it felt like actually it was more important to be compassionate towards them and yeah yeah maybe Maybe, though. I mean, a part of me is also like, maybe if I pushed it harder, we would have just cancelled the show and all been in George Square. Many of my climates are interested in how different generations can work together or might become divided. Let's hear what people are saying about that. There's often some sort of intergenerational tensions. Sometimes they're being encouraged or being seen to be there. You know, the, the young are blaming the old for getting the world into this state. And there's some justice in that. But at the end of it, maybe we, we just need to work across generations on this. It's not something that's just for one group who will attack and uh despise another group but let's say oh okay we all have our have our sins and we all have our culpabilities in this but let's work it together and i, I think it could be a nice a nice way of, of tackling intergenerational issues so something i'm really passionate about is intergenerational work and i really feel i felt like there are some older adults in my life that i'm so grateful to have had as mentors and um and support but by and large I feel like there's so little um, stepping up of older people in support of young ones who say yes your visions have a place here and and give them the tools for resilience because that's you know when you're 15 I, I love like when I work with that age group there's so much energy and there's so much fire and passion um, but you know you don't necessarily have the long haul kind of thinking you will just want to put your energy into something there and then and that's where elderhood comes in but unless we have these elders present then um then things movements fizzle out rather rather when they kind of come up against a, like such an ingrained system that is designed to um to suppress people's empowerment essentially you might check it out sometime if you have if you have a moment it's called imagining climate change and he's, um, he's a guy who's been doing this now again for several years. Uh, one of the recent events that he held on campus was in collaboration with a uh, climate justice lawyer who's based out of California. It was such a powerful event. Um, she's supporting all these youth in the United States who are so fed up and so frustrated with the lack of engagement that our federal system is showing towards 
climate change related issues considering the effect that it's going to have upon future generations that these younger people in in the nation and there's several of them actually in our in our community here in Gainesville have banded together to approach the issue as a civil rights issue that climate justice is a concern against the right to the pursuit of happiness in the future because of the effects that climate change are going to have upon quality of life, upon access to clean water, uh, you know, food, um, maybe different safety concerns on all kinds of levels. And this, this lawyer in, in, in California is like fully behind them. They've gone so far as a Supreme Court in terms of attention to these issues. So it's a really, really um, positive momentum that this gentleman at UF is pushing forth through his Imagining Climate Change program. I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. Do you think that some of the people who have done the biggest damage to the planet could be held responsible by law for crimes against the air? Well, personally, I don't think so because this is quite a new, it's quite a new crisis and everybody everybody's responsible for what's happened. Like, you may say, oh, since I, I'm 13, so I can still be held responsible, though, because we've all, we've all done our subtle things to make that a reality. Everyone's equally responsible, I think. I don't think you'd be able to send someone to jail for causing climate change. Because, like, climate change is something that is so relevant now and I think to people that are like my age it's more relevant than to people who are like 60 because they're less likely to see the full effects of it because they might be dead and that's not medium harsh that's just the truth they will probably die before us um and if other people aren't taking action then like we have to I'm aged 81 and it's does you know? So, I mean, I meet some of my friends even at seventy or something like that, and they say, "Well, some of them, some of them say, well, I'm not, don't think I'm going to bother about it a lot because I'll be dead." And I think that's probably there, but I don't. I strangely don't feel like that. I mean, it's quite logical. Yeah, I'm going to be dead, so who cares? But. It's, you know, I, I don't know why, but I just, I, I'm a bit different in that way. I just sort of think it's, um, you know, even if, I, if, even if I was dead, somehow I'd be very sad if the human race died. Because I remember years ago, my dad, um, before he passed on many years ago, because I've always been a bit of a lefty, and... Um, and, and, and an anarchist and all that. Um, I remember years ago he said to me, as you, grow, as you grow older, you become more conservative. And I think you do, but it's because you become more inward looking. You know, if you have, if you have kids, you, you, you bring the kids up, they move on, and then you start thinking about yourself. See what I mean? Yeah. Well, if you don't have kids, you get to a point where you're, you've got to start thinking about retirement and who, who the hell's going to look after me. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? I think, 
just take me one first half of your life you're looking outwardly asking all the questions going how does that work but why does that work what why does it work that way why does it doesn't it work this way and in your second half of your life you start thinking why am i seeing it this way why do i want it to work that way <laughs> see what i mean yeah that's interesting that's what's happened i've started i've, I've reached the second half of my life one of my suggestions about government was we should change the House of Lords to the House of Children. And I really meant it. I've said that for years. But, you know, people up to, uh, you know, including, you know, teenagers and people up to age 30 or whatever, uh, if they had real power in this situation, they would make a difference. Because they wouldn't faff about with things that don't relate to the death of the human race, which is the ultimate that will happen. There's still loads of stuff that I do, have been doing without thinking, that now that I'm thinking about it, I need to change. But I don't have the new way of doing it yet, so it's going to take me like a... I feel like it'll take me a year at least to... Totally. ...live how I want to live. And it might actually be some kind of quite big and potentially uncomfortable for my partner <laughs> and potentially yeah. difficult around my friends. Changes. Well, and that, maybe that's necessary though, yeah. you know, maybe we need this, we need this period of discomfort uh, in order to produce uh, some sort of a, of a system that is equitable, you yeah. know. Um, but I also because... completely hang on to the idea that it's not all about life being worse and more uncomfortable. I think ultimately it's going to be better. It's, it's, it'll be like going on a diet. It'll be yeah. tricky for a little while, but at the end of it, you're going to feel a lot better. That's a cool way to sell it in terms of going on a diet. Yeah. Carbon diet. Like we're consuming, right? We're consuming too much. We, <laughs> we've gotten to a point as a species that we're so good at manipulating our surrounding environment that like everything is so convenient everything is so easy to consume that we need a diet we need to go on a diet of convenience the only problem with a diet like thing is i've thought about this quite a bit because it's i i had a huge big diet in my life and i've lost and gained and lost and gained like diets associated with that like giving up for a little while and then picking it back up again and doing it worse yeah. something yeah where where the where the uh the mindset is not about like a short-term uh, change. Uh, it seems like it's it's a habitual thing that needs to change. It's a, it's a yeah. sort of a ritualistic uh, concept, I guess, that that folks need to engage in. A lovely note to leave the first episode on. In the next episode, I'll be asking: Do good intentions matter, or just good deeds? Being private to be somebody that's a conscientious protector that's an earth protector that's it's kind of a, a branding problem for for eco-conscious Cheese.
Climates in this episode include Geraldine, Chan, Aaron, Nicola, Claire, Jim, Rachel, Tess, John, Heather, George, Stanley, Greta, Gregor, Anne, Alex, Derek, Kenneth, Catherine, Lily, Red, Bianca, Ben, Harper, Ian, and I'm Hazel. But supposing it was, uh, uh, whatever it is, an asteroid or a comet or something, the sort of thing that wiped out the dinosaurs, apparently. Uh-huh. If it was, well, let's just make it even less than that. Let's just make it two-thirds of the thing that wiped out the dinosaurs. Supposing that, supposing we knew that was coming for Earth, I bet there would be a hell of a lot more action, actually. Uh, I think there would. So thank you for listening. This is an independent production, by which I mean I'm a mum making this in my bedroom and the only support I have is that of my mum looking after the kids and my husband putting up with me going on and on about it. But if you enjoyed the podcast and can tell your friends, share a link to it on social media or leave a nice review, that would be amazing. Thank you. Climate Podcast. That was good.